This morning now we're turning our attention to God's Word and we are in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, we've been moving our way through this book. If you do not have a Bible, uh, we invite you to borrow one of ours from under one of the chairs in front of you. It's the black book, and I believe you'll find our text on page 739, maybe 740, but, but, uh, but right in that range. Daniel chapter 4 is where we're at this morning. These days it's become very popular to kind of uh, start a television episode or a movie by beginning close to the end of uh, just launching you right into the action, right in the midst of things, and then pulling back, as it were, like a flashback, back to the beginning uh, and, and letting you see how, how the situation has arrived at that moment of tension at the beginning. The goal is to kind of grab the viewer, not just to kind of establish the story and build it slowly, but to throw you right in the midst of it so that you cannot help but stay tuned in or to stay in the theater, to stay engaged and be excited to finish this thing, to see not only how they arrived in that situation, but how the tension itself will resolve. And I say that because in many ways, this is how Daniel chapter 4 opens for us this morning. Look, at, look with me at the first three verses. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, you may not understand it immediately, but let me tell you why that is surprising on many levels. First, it's unusual for an Old Testament narrative to begin that way. Usually it ends with something like that. In fact, some Bible translators put these verses at the end of chapter 3 rather than at the beginning of chapter 4 because it is so unusual. But more than that, more than that, what makes it so astonishing and unique is the fact of who is saying this. This is a statement a marvelous statement about the power of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And it's coming from the lips of a pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar. He is a man who previously had worshipped the gods of Babylon. And as we have been seeing in the last few chapters, has gloried in himself even more than those false gods. Now here he is giving praise to the God of Israel. In fact, he is declaring the theme for us of the whole book of Daniel, he is declaring that God alone is great enough, is sovereign enough, is glorious enough to establish and maintain not a temporary kingdom that will one day pass away, but an everlasting kingdom. What in the world happened to Nebuchadnezzar to bring him to a place like that? What has, what has God done in his life to bring him to a place to declare not just to himself, not just to his close friends, but to all the peoples over which he governs? But the Most High God is truly God who reigns over an everlasting kingdom. This is what we want to see from Daniel chapter 4 this morning. And what we see is that Nebuchadnezzar learned three profound truths, simple but profound truths about God. And the result of learning these truths is that he became a man humbled under the Lord. And as God's people, as Christians, there are few things that should be at the top of our list as much as to humbly honor the Lord God. Therefore, let us give attention to what happened to this ancient king in this text that we might learn what he learned and so arrive at the same attitude that he had by the end of his days. The first truth that he learned was this, that God rules the powerful. That God rules the powerful. That's not to say 
that he doesn't also rule the weak. Okay? Uh, it's not saying the powerful to the exclusion of everyone else. That's not what we're saying at all. In fact, it's the opposite. What we're saying is everything is under his command and control, even the most powerful of leaders and rulers in this world. So by saying he rules the most powerful, we're saying he rules everything. That there is no one that is not under his sovereign rule. This is the, really the central point of the dream that we're about to see that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. This is what we begin reading about in verse 4. Follow along with me. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and preparing in my palace, prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they cannot make known to me its interpretation. Sound familiar? This is a very similar situation that we just saw, was it not? That the king has this dream, it disturbs him. Why? Because he knows it's not like any other dream. Given the, the imagery that is there and what is going on, the voice that he hears, he understands that the largest issues of life are being dealt with. And we'll, we'll, we'll see that in just a minute as we look to the dream. But again, what we find is he assembles all of his wise men, all of the people that should be able to tell him what the dream means, and they can't do it. And so he does the same that he did last time, and that is he goes to Daniel, one of God's people, and relies on him. Verse 8. At last, after everybody else has had their turn, Daniel came in before me. He, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I told him the dream. Remember, Daniel, for those of you that, uh, that may not have been here for our whole series, Daniel was a young man, probably 15 or 16, a young man in Israel who was taken captive by the armies of this King Nebuchadnezzar. He was brought into Babylon that, with the goal of having him retrained and retaught so that he would forget about his life as an Israelite and serve as a Babylonian in the courts. And in fact, God, uh, God worked in the heart of Daniel, and he made a decree, even if they kill me, I am going to serve the living God alone. And in fact, because of that courageous stance and pursuit of God, God prospered him to the point of being in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nevertheless, when they came, along with all of the indoctrination, came new names. This is why a godly man of Israel is named after a pagan god of Babylon. Let's pick it back up at verse 9. Nebuchadnezzar told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and broads amid the tender grass of the field. 
Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. It's a powerful image of this amazing, glorious tree exploding with growth and with fruit, providing shade and sustenance to all of creation around it, man and beast alike. In fact, so vast and impressive is this tree that it can be seen in his dream from across the ends of the earth. Yet surely part of what was disturbing about this dream for Nebuchadnezzar is that he realized some idea of what the interpretation was about. You notice the pronoun shifted in the language of the watcher in his speech, explaining what was to happen. This heavenly messenger sent to execute God's justice talked about the it of the tree to suddenly the he and the him of a person. That which is pictured as a tree is not really a tree, but a man. And without a doubt, the king suspects he is that man. Therefore, what is this dream about? What does it mean that it's, I'm going to be chopped down uh, to the stump and to my roots? What does it mean I'm going to be banded about with this metallic band? What does it mean that the mind of a man will be replaced with the mind of a beast? He's disturbed. He doesn't know. And so he calls Daniel. We read in the following verse, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. And that's interpretation for its enemies. Daniel hears the dream and he almost immediately knows this is not good for the king. He hears the dream and he becomes dismayed. But Nebuchadnezzar tries to assure him not to worry. It doesn't matter what the interpretation is. Tell me the dream. Now why, why is Nebuchadnezzar telling him that? Because he thinks Daniel fears him. We saw the last time somebody crossed him. What did he do? He tried to burn him up in a furnace. And so he thinks Daniel knows it's bad news, but he's afraid to tell him. He says, no, tell me. It doesn't matter what it is. Tell me. And notice the first thing out of Daniel's mouth. My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. And it's interpretation for your enemies. As was common for the day, Daniel expresses his desire that the bad news that is meant for the king fall on the king's enemies rather than the king himself. Now, I don't want to dwell here long, but... You often don't get this kind of opportunity, particularly in the season that we're in. So I want you to think about, very briefly with me, we're kind of taking a sidestep from the main point, but we need to think about Daniel's example and how we view government leaders here. Remember, this is an Israelite king, a sinful pagan ruler, and Daniel has been called into his service because he's been ripped out of his own life and replanted there. Understand, Daniel is in no way endorsing his paganism, yet, yet he still remains loyal in the sphere of service in which he finds himself. Here, he has learned and is embodying what Paul explicitly says in Romans chapter 13, that though God's people are ultimately and finally loyal to only God and to God alone, they are nevertheless to be good citizens of the earthly kingdom in which they find themselves. In part, this means, as evidenced by what Daniel says, he does not hold the king in contempt. 
And I say this now because it is very, very easy for us to have government leaders on any level, whether it's local, state, national, in any branch, whether it's executive, legislative, or judicial, and to hold them in contempt for being pagan sinners. And let me just say that even if it is our desire as American citizens to vote them out of office, Daniel shows what Paul explicitly says, there is still a level of respect and goodwill that we desire to show towards them. We should be praying, as Paul says elsewhere in 1 Timothy, praying for those in authority of us. They might come to see the truth and that we might be able to live, live and lead godly lives. Daniel goes on to explain to the king what the dream was about, verse 20. The tree that you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves are beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth. Bound it with a bond of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from, that, from the time that you know the heavens rule. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your, pro your prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar had been exalted to a place of prominence as a world leader, yet he failed to see that it was not his own ability that led him to such prominence. Rather, it was because it is God who raises up and brings down kings that he had been established by that same God. All of what he had had been given to him by the Most High God. If he knew that, if he understood that, then he would have been humble in his sovereignty over the nation of Babylon. He would have been able to show mercy to the wicked, and he would have ruled with righteousness. But because he failed to see or acknowledge this, all that he cherished, he took pride in believing that he was the one who had exalted himself. And therefore he was harsh in his reign. And therefore God says, all of your accomplishments, all of the things that you take pride in, I am going to strip those things away from you so that you, you will learn humility. In the end, what we see here is it doesn't matter how powerful a person is. On one level, they are simply a pawn in the hands of the living God and he can move them around the board in any way that he desires. That is not to say that life is a game. By no means. Rather it means there is one who stands sovereign over all things. There is one who sees the most powerful men and women of the world. And where we would stutter and stammer and think of nothing to say. He is not impressed. He is not impressed. He does not seek their opinion nor their counsel. He is never swayed by their opinion or worried that they may not like him. 
because he knows he is God above all. They are his creation. He is the creator. Because all that they have has come as a gracious gift, a gift from his hand. He controls them. They never control him. God alone rules over the most powerful people on the earth. Now put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of any exiled Israelite who loves God and desires to remain faithful to him and yet is living in Babylon at this time. Think about how comforting this message would have been to them. That God assures them, even where you're at now, I am still king. I am still sovereign over everything, even the very nation and king under which you are presently living. Nothing can thwart my plans, even my plans to restore you, my people, from exile. Think about how much hope and comfort that would have brought to God's people. But this should also be a comfort for us today as we seek to live as his people, not under one nation, but spread out among many nations, living under all kinds of leaders, good, bad, and ugly. God is assuring us nothing can stand in his way. The most powerful men are simply men, and he is king. God reigns over the most powerful, but secondly, God humbles the proud. God humbles the proud. This is the second truth that King Nebuchadnezzar learns and that we should learn as well. Verse 28 we read, All this, all this that was shown to him in a dream that was interpreted for him, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Now let's just stop there for a minute. Think about that. It's been a year since his dream. A year, 12 months, a year is given to him to repent and get right with God. After all, the judgment could have been avoided, right? Isn't that what David says? He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the press. There may perhaps be a lengthening of your days. God says, this is what is coming, O king. And Daniel says, if you turn away, God might spare you. And God doesn't take Nebuchadnezzar out immediately. He deserves to be taken out in a heartbeat because of what he has done. But God showed him mercy, even though he would show no others mercy. He warned him of the consequences of his sin and gave him time to repent. And the question is, if God really spoke to you in a dream and you knew for certain this is the interpretation, this is what it meant, and God really, God was really speaking to you, how long would it take you to repent, to get your mind right and turn back from your sin? A couple hours? A couple days? A couple weeks? A couple months? How about 12 months? This is the length of time that God patiently waits for Nebuchadnezzar to respond in an appropriate way to the dream, to the warning that he has given him. And instead, he uses that time not to repent, not to second-guess himself, but to continue to advance his kingdom and glory in his own achievements. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not... This great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. 
and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. The ancient kingdom of Babylon has had two of the world's seven ancient wonders. The first was the hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife. The second was the wall around Babylon. It was so thick, it was so well fortified that a chariot four horses across could not only drive around the entire top of the wall, but also had enough room to turn around and go the opposite direction. It was an amazing sight. And here, standing at the top of his palace, overlooking these things, Nebuchadnezzar begins to boast, saying, Look at everything that I have accomplished. Doesn't it just bring glory to me and my kingdom? And we're told that the words are not even all the way out of his mouth when God's voice thunders out of heaven into his life once more. This is not the first time that Nebuchadnezzar has encountered the God of Israel. But this time he has not just shown a display of God's power. This time, this time he is the display of God's power. Imagine the horror of being a royal servant. One of the the courtiers that are there to serve every whim and fancy of the king. To watch his facial expression twist from this sane Vain, arrogant king as he surveys all that he has as he begins to twist and contort to that of a dumb ox. Who perhaps even throws off the royal clothes and runs out in the field to graze. Like some wild beast, he would live there for seven years. Seven years. Imagine seeing a man who at the height of world domination began thinking like he's a beast. Sleeping outside at night so that the dew covers him in the morning. His hair becoming ungangly and long. His nails looking like that of eagle's claws. Eating grass like a wild beast. Some have tried to identify Nebuchadnezzar's actions with a diagnosable mental illness. It very well may have been something that we can identify with, but do not get caught up in those kind of details and miss the point. God wasn't predicting an illness. God was giving him an illness. The affliction that came among the king was a divine judgment upon him. Why did God do this to the king? Verse 32, that he might know the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God wanted to humble the prideful heart of Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to show him that regardless of how great and powerful he was, it was God alone who was sovereign and glorious over all things. Pride that was so that so easily grew in the heart of the king, God was now seeking to uproot like the sinful weed that it was. One scholar said this, a man who thinks he's like a god must become a beast to learn he is only a human being. I think it's exactly what God was trying to do here. And we may look at that and think that's cruel on God's part. But ask which is worse? Which is worse, to experience an affliction that reveals your sin and draws you up to God that you might be made right with him? Or to simply be taken out with no warning at all because of your sin. And for that to be done justly against you. To be warned that judgment is coming. That you have time to get right with him. Friends, Nebuchadnezzar deserves much worse than he got. Much worse than he got. And so do we. 
but God is merciful towards us. Last year, many thought it was virtually a given that uh, the Christian football player Tim Tebow would lead his team to a Super Bowl victory. Why? Because he was a Christian. That was it. Everyone assumed, well, he's a Christian. God's going to bless him. They're going to win the Super Bowl. That didn't happen, though, did it? And the question is, why not? Well, frankly, it could have just been Tebow wasn't that great of a player. I mean, that's, that could be part of it, right? We don't know. You know what else it could have been? God humbling him. Because isn't that what he does with his people? That's what he did with the Apostle Paul, do you remember? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, God, God gave me a messenger from Satan, this thing he calls a thorn in the flesh, this physical affliction that he believed prevented him from greater ministry. And he begged God, get this out of me. Take this affliction away so that I can be a better apostle for you, O God. And do you remember, remember what God's response was? I've given that to you for a reason. Because when you're weak, then I'm strong. And so Paul says that God gave him this thorn, quote, to keep me from becoming conceited. Think about that. Paul says, because of the amazing salvation that I experienced, the heavenly visions of the risen Christ that I alone were given, it would have been very easy for me to become prideful, for my heart and my head to swell well beyond their normal capacity. And yet God continually popped that with this thorn. He kept bringing me down, humbling me, so that I was still useful to God. What that says is, in all of this, God is more concerned about our spiritual maturity than about being nice to us. He is more concerned that we are godly than that we are comfortable and live a life without difficulty. From God's perspective, pride is one of the most, if not the most, deadly sins of the heart. Why? Because at its root, it is anti-God. That's what it is. Pride says the glory and the honor and the power that should be due him is due me. Pride says I don't need the wisdom of God. I have my own wisdom. Pride says I don't need God for anything, nor do I owe God anything because I am a self-made individual. Ultimately, pride sends us to hell. But in his grace, before God destroys the proud, he tries to humble them that they might see the error of their ways. They might see the sin of their heart and turn back to the living God with repentance and faith. If the proud aren't hardened in their heart by their affliction, then they allow themselves to be humbled and turn to God, and there they find a God who doesn't just humble the proud, but he also restores the humble. This is the last thing we see this morning. Number three, God restores the humble. Remember in the dream that the watcher didn't uproot the tree, he simply lofted up, lopped it off at the stump. Implicitly, the remaining stump then gives hope that the tree can grow again. Have you ever seen this and, and on, and on the Internet or maybe in real life? But um, I saw a National Geographic one time. It was just amazing. One of these just massive old trees that had been just taken right off at the stump. And you're just thinking, well, that's the end of that. Nope, right in the middle. The, the circumference had to be 10 feet of this thing. And right in the middle is this chute coming up uh, with, with, with a couple of leaves on the top. The, the, the top's gone, but guess what? The stump is still there. It's still alive. It's going to grow back. Implicitly, that is what God is doing with Nebuchadnezzar. Seven periods of time have passed. There's a complete humbling 
for the king. That's what the seven represents. And in verse 34, read this. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. These are the final words that we read of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. It's not Daniel who's writing this. It's not Moses. It's not any great leader of the Old Testament. It is Nebuchadnezzar himself. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if the leaders who were at the G8 summit ended their meeting by kneeling on the floor and acknowledging that though they are the world's most powerful leaders, there is a God who's, who's an even more powerful leader who reigns supreme? I mean, I mean, it would be amazing. It would be insane. It would blow up the Internet. That's what it would do if that happened. And Babylon didn't even have the the Internet. Nevertheless, it was surely remarkable even in that king's day. But more than that, this was not a man who was indifferent to God. Remember, this was a king who was an active enemy of God. He was a man who attacked Israel, who destroyed Jerusalem, who ransacked and stole from the temple and enslaved God's people. Yet he experienced God's mercy and was able to, to be turned around so that he now confesses God as the everlasting king. Friends, that, that power of God on display in his life gives us hope. Because what it says is, if a man like Nebuchadnezzar can find mercy and be turned around by the power of God, then there is no one who is beyond God's reach. There is no one who can say, I'm too bad. There is no one who can say, I'm far too gone. We can say, if Nebuchadnezzar could come to faith in God and be humbled, then Anyone can. Then anyone can. And notice how it all happened. How did the fall he experienced turn to arise again? Look at where his eyes are at the beginning and the end of his humbling. At the beginning, Nebuchadnezzar's eyes are focused on himself and his accomplishments. But at the end, Nebuchadnezzar turns his eyes toward God. This is the key to experiencing true humility. It's important to to say that because there is a kind of false humility that says, oh, I'm nothing, oh, I'm weak, and yet the focus remains on me and my weakness. True humility says, yes, I'm weak, I can't do it, but then its gaze turns the living God and says, there is my strength. There is one who can do it, both in me and through me. True humility begins by acknowledging our weakness, but it ends by acknowledging God as our strength. True humility recognizes that I am nothing, but also that God is everything. So that even today, this is how sinners who deserve judgment receive mercy and salvation from God. We cannot leave Daniel 4 without seeing the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and another king. Another king that we read about in the New Testament. He is a king who didn't need to be humbled, but willingly chose to do so. He was perfect in his righteousness and did not need to be reconciled to God, and yet he humbled himself before God willingly. So that the judgment that God promised for sinners like Nebuchadnezzar, like you and me, would fall not on them, but on himself. He was their substitute that they might be reconciled to God. This king is Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why Jesus willingly went to the cross to die in humiliation for the sins of his people. The full wrath of God, his judgment falling upon him instead of them. And this salvation is ours whenever we humble ourselves, admitting our need of a Savior and trusting Christ to be that Savior, believing that God, that he died under the hand of God and yet was rose again in glory. As we conclude, let's draw out three implications for our lives, and then we'll be done. If you've been staying with us on our two-year Reading the Bible Together plan, then just last week you, week you read 1 Peter chapter 5. What does that have to do with Daniel chapter 4? Simply this. Within a span of two verses, the Apostle Peter essentially distills down the application for this chapter. Here's what he says, 1 Peter 5, verses 6-7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's, that, that's how we apply Daniel chapter 4. So how do we respond? Three things. First of all, we humble ourselves before God. We humble ourselves before God. How do we do this? We begin by looking at our sin and then by looking at God's perfections. You're, if you're not yet one of his people, if you're here and you say, I don't know that I'm a Christian, I don't know that I know God, I'm not sure that I'm saved, then humbly take your eyes off of yourself and put them on Christ. Acknowledge that you are a sinner deserving of wrath, and yet God has willingly taken that wrath upon himself that you might be forgiven. So look to him, the one true God. God cares for you and does not desire that any would perish forever in hell. As one who is already part of God's church, do the same. Look at your sin, then look at Christ. Remember how he has graciously and mercifully saved you from the judgment to come. Remember there is nothing that you could have done to save yourself. Then remember how much God has blessed you already in Christ. He has given you health and financial stability. He has given you spiritual life that you enjoy as his people. Humble yourselves by remembering your failings and by remembering God's glory. When you lay down to sleep tonight, the last thing you should do is to pause and to pray and say, God, I thank you that while I am tired and weary and need rest, you never do. You are the everlasting king who never grows tired, who never goes slack, and always protects and provides for your people. Humble yourself by depending on God's word. Every time you open it up, ask God to speak to you, acknowledging you need his wisdom and guidance even to read his book. You need his spirit to bring to fruition the power of that word in your life so that you can experience spiritual change. Secondly, then, you should trust in God's mighty hand. You should trust in God's mighty hand. Remember that God is sovereign over all things. Nothing can stop him. That means his arm is not slack to save you, nor to keep him from fulfilling his promises. Remember that you can trust those promises to exalt you. Just as Christ was exalted after a time of suffering and humiliation, so also for us, his people. Though we are humiliated and suffer in this life, that we are humbled, God promises to exalt us along with his son on the final day, to reveal to all the world that we are his people, even his children. 
through the pain of this life. In the meantime, God is refining us and bringing us closer to Him. Therefore, keep your eyes fixed on God, trusting that He will fulfill His promises through the power of His sovereign might. Finally, we cast our cares on God. We cast our cares on God. We lay out our concerns to Him in prayer, remembering that He knows what you need before you even ask. Why do you hesitate? Remember that He cares about you, O Christian. Remember that he not only knows your needs, he desires to meet your needs. Pride is bound up in believing we can supply all of our own needs. But the humble person admits and acknowledges he needs help. And that's what prayer is about. It's an expression of humble, confident dependence on the good and powerful character of God. As God's people, as Christians who bear the name of Christ, then let us follow the example of Christ and live in humble dependence upon God, trusting in His sovereign care over everything. Father, this is our prayer this morning. We pray that as we see the work that you've done in the life of this ancient pagan king, that you would continue to do a similar work in us, God. That you would humble us, God. Not because you desire to break us or to inflict pain upon us, but because you desire to get us to take our eyes off of ourself and look to you, the one true God, the everlasting King. A King who has mercy on sinners. God, help us to be humble and God, help us to turn our eyes toward you. God, may we trust you for everything, especially the salvation of our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.